My name is Michael Reisman. I'm the Myers McDougall Professor of International Law at the Yale Law School. I'm privileged and honored to participate in the audiovisual library of the United Nations and uh, look forward to giving a lecture on a problem that has been uh, acute for many international lawyers. And it deals with the issue of unilateral action and in particular, humanitarian intervention. I propose to try to relate the problem of unilateral action to the larger configuration of legal systems and show that they have varied through time and that to an extent this accounts for the differential response to instances of humanitarian intervention. Most detailed most decision processes are jolted into operation in response to acts of individual participants. Those acts aren't unilateral actions, as that term is used in international law. A unilateral action is an act by a formally unauthorized participant, which effectively preempts the official decision a legally designated official or agency was supposed to take. Yet. The unilateral action is accompanied by a claim that it is nonetheless lawful because, first, the pertinent legal system allows such unilateral acts in certain circumstances and on condition that substantive tests of lawfulness are met. Second, the circumstances for the particular unilateral act are claimed to be appropriate. And third, the act, despite its procedural irregularities, has purportedly complied with the relevant substantive requirements of lawfulness. The feature that distinguishes a unilateral action as a term of art from other acts that are initiated by a single participant is that a unilateral action effectively replaces lawful decision by obviating it entirely or forcing official processes to endorse it. Other acts that are initiated by a participant do not preempt or replace authoritative decision. They stimulate its operation and are ultimately reviewed by it. When jurists encounter claims with respect to unilateral actions then, they necessarily address them at two juridical levels, two levels of analysis. They must ask first whether the constitutive process of the pertinent legal system even allows for the possibility of lawful unilateral action or in the matter for which it is claimed. And if that constitutive question is answered in the affirmative, then second, whether the particular action in question fulfilled whatever substantive criteria of lawfulness are to be applied. Now, if the first or second question is answered in the negative, the action is illegal. Because unilateral action preempts or replaces an authoritative decision by some formally authorized agency, it's important that we specify the sequential components of a decision. As lawyers, we frequently use the word decision without appreciating that it has a reference to a large number of acts. If we took that word decision and we cracked it, we opened it up, we deconstructed it, we would find that there are seven, seven different components that comprise decision making. The first is intelligence, or the gathering and assembly of information relevant to decision. The second component of decision is promotion, the characterization of certain situations as unacceptable and the agitation for and the promotion of a particular new legal policy to remedy. The third is prescription or lawmaking, the installation of one such policy as law, whether it's accomplished by formal legislation or by some informal means of prescription, for example, customary international law. The fourth is invocation which involves the provisional characterization of certain events as incompatible with the law that's been established 
and the insistence that the community respond appropriately. The fifth, which we focus on for the most part as lawyers, is application. And this involves the application of law to the events that occurred and the fashioning of an appropriate remedy. The sixth component function is termination or the abrogation of extant law and the installation of new law. And finally, the last of these component functions is appraisal, the assessment of the aggregate performance of the legal system in terms of its fundamental goals. Different legal systems distribute and concentrate the competence to perform these various functions differently so that what might be characterized as both unilateral and unlawful in one constitutive arrangement may be quite lawful in another. For example, one system may allow virtually unregulated unilateral action with respect to promotion, spawning vast industries of lobbyists, agitators, and sundry moral entrepreneurs while another may locate promotion exclusively in a formal governmental process. One system may give great play to customary law, tribal law, or religious law, while another may jealously guard the sovereign prerogative to make all law for the community. Many jurists assume that modern developed legal systems however much they distribute participation in other decision functions, must guard their mon monopoly with respect to law applying, as it is the most manifestly coercive function. But actually, that is not always the case. Many systems, indeed currently the most developed systems, allow considerable privatization of erstwhile state-managed adjudication in the form of arbitration, and some permit the establishment, subject to varying degrees of control by some part of the state apparatus, of private police forces and even private prisons. So the actual distribution of participation in different decision functions is important to understanding the lawfulness of unilateral action in a particular system, because broad opportunities for private participation in pre-application functions may, in context, effectively decide the application and thus constitute a disguised but nonetheless effective form of unilateral action. Now, for all lawyers, and not simply for the doctors of international law, the idea of unilateral action, as I've described it, imports a normative ambiguity a very deep professional ambivalence. The normative ambiguity arises from the fact that the question of the lawfulness of acts or decisions is ordinarily assessed in terms of their conformity to law, of their substance as well as their procedures by which they were taken. This dual criterion, substance and procedure, is used because both substantive and procedural law express important though quite different community policies. In the unilateral action, substance alone is claimed to be relevant. The failure to comply with prescribed procedures may well be accompanied by effusive expressions of constraint, reluctance, and regret, along with emphasis on the overriding urgent importance of the substantive act. But whatever the rhetoric, the distinguishing feature of the unilateral act is that the prescribed procedure taken by which it was taken should have been essentially collective and it was ignored. Part of the controversy about the lawfulness of unilateral action in general then does not concern unilateral action at all, but is simply the result of using a different observational standpoint and role standpoints without appreciating that each looks at decision-making and the use of rules in quite different ways. For example, the bureaucrat inhabits a limited number of relatively routinized situations within a universe of rules and authorized proce procedures 
through which he or she navigates and in terms of compliance with which his or her performance is evaluated. Positivist jurisprudence, which lends itself to decision-making by many of the levels of bureaucracy, identifies lawfulness in terms of the compliance with rules. The decision-maker at the pinnacle, in contrast, does not think in terms of rules, but rather optimizing policies that may be expressed in rules, but which are presented for, for decision in situations that are anything but routine. After all, if they were routine, they would have been adequately dealt with by the bureaucrats at lower levels of behemoth. So from the perspective of the jurist who is deploying a positivist jurisprudential frame, the decision-maker is acting unilaterally and unlawfully, using a different, possibly more appropriate jurisprudential framework could lead to the opposite conclusion. The professional ambivalence toward unilateral action arises from the fact that jurists, above all, appreciate that at the heart of procedural law is the notion that orderly decision, preceded by due deliberation and followed by authorized and inclusive application, is vital to minimum order and human dignity. We lawyers know that however noble the impulse, action that purports to be in the common interest, but that is taken without formal authority, may have incalculable public and private costs. Actions inconsistent with the procedures prescribed for them may erode the authority of law and increase the probability of abuse. Hence, the law's ceaseless quest for organization and institutionalization and its discomfort with and inherent resistance to legally unauthorized actions no matter how urgent the circumstances or morally imperative the impulse. Law's insistence on orderly decision is, I emphasize, not a professional pathology or some subcultural quirk, but it's central to the legal enterprise. Contemporary international lawyers who often seem obsessed with unilateral action and assume that it is a unique feature or failing of international law might console themselves with the realization that the problem of the lawfulness of formerly unauthorized unilateral action in international law is generic to all law. Vilfredo Pareto observed the correlation between the ineffectiveness of a political system and the resort to and the toleration of unilateral action. According to Pareto, the less effective the system the more the impulse for and the use of unilateral action and vice versa. His observation, which may apply to even more phenomena than he addressed, has been confirmed by countless anthropologists. But now we come to the problem, who is authorized to determine that a system is generally ineffective or incapable of responding to one particular problem? One of the reasons unilateral action is so divisive is that the assessments of ineffectiveness of the legal system that might justify recourse to international, to unilateral actions, will in many political configurations depend on whose ox is being gored. There may be profound disagreements among participants in a partially effective political system or a subsystem as to whether the system in question is indeed ineffective in responding to a particular matter or class of events. Such disagreements may rest on conflicting values and interests as much as on factual perceptions, since in any instance, the unilateral action will, by its nature, indulge some and deprive others, not the least those who have a place or an interest in the decision process that is being circumvented or entirely usurped. The latter point is frequently the nub of the international legal issue when unilateral military action that is plausibly based on humanitarian concerns is still strongly criticized by elites of smaller states. The reason for the criticism 
is not necessarily a lack of feeling for human rights, so much as the fear that any erosion of the principle of sovereignty can only increase the vulnerability of weaker states to more powerful states. Even when it is generally accepted that a system is failing to respond to a violation whose remedy has been assigned exclusively to a formal decision maker, or that the human consequences of the failure are especially grave, some participants, international lawyers in particular, may still insist that good intentions notwithstanding, greater systemic injury will be caused by the prospective unilateral action than by the failure of the designated decision maker to respond adequately. Nor is this always, as exponents of unilateral action contend, a dreamy retreat from a nastily imperfect reality. It may be an indispensable ingredient in the recipe for changing that reality. I'd now like to relate this to the notion of constitutive process, which is a concept very fundamental to the New Haven School of Jurisprudence. Let me put it this way. Much as every sound is meaningful only if it takes place in a language system, the question of the extent of the lawfulness of unilateral action in general, and in particular cases, derives its meaning and from the political and the legal system in which it takes place, and especially the system's constitutive process. Every legal system, from the most evanescent encounter of two persons to the most comprehensive international one, includes what we call a constitutive process, a process which establishes and maintains the institutions and procedures by which decisions are to be taken. Constitutive process can be distinguished from the flow of specific decisions about the mundane who gets what that established institutions and procedures take. Some legal systems purport to describe their constitutive process in a document called a constitution. And that document may, at the moment of its inception, though not necessarily, have been an accurate picture of the constitutive process. But the dynamic process itself quickly changes and is, begins to drift from and edit and elaborate, elaborate the snapshot taken at the moment of drafting. So the notion of a dynamic constitutive process rather than a constitution is important, particularly in international law. For some purposes, constitutive processes can be described in great detail in terms of the full range of those who participate in them, their background conceptions and explicit and latent objectives, the arenas in which the process takes place, and the characteristics of those participants, the bases of power that participants deploy and the ways they deploy them, and the aggregate outcomes of the process. Now, in the inquiry today, that level of detail would be impossible. So I propose instead to use the drastic abbreviations available in an adaptation of Max Weber's conceptual tool of ideal types and I'm going to try to identify a number of ideal constitutive structures that are relevant to understanding international politics over the last century. When a unilateral action occurs, its legal appraisal then varies as a function of the constitutive configuration in which it occurs. I'll deal with four constitutive configurations that are relevant here. First, constitutive processes without hierarchical institutions of decision. Second, constitutive processes in which there are hierarchical institutions of decision which are manifestly ineffective. Third, constitutive processes in which the hierarchical institutions are generally effective but prove to be ineffective for the application of particular norms. And fourth, constitutive processes in which hierarchical institutions are highly effective and in which unilateral actions will simply be characterized as 
taking the law into one's own hand and hence delictual, no matter what the explanations and how passionate the justifications proffered. So let's consider briefly each of these ideal types of constitutional or constitutive structure. In ideal, begin with unorganized and non-hierarchical constitutive structures. In legal systems whose constitutive processes do not have or do not operate through hierarchical institutions for making and applying law, unilateral action is perforce the method for making decisions. The unilaterality of the action of itself is not a relative considera relevant consideration in the assessment of its lawfulness. Participants within the legal system may decry the absence of organized decision-making arrangements that would obviate the need for justification of unilateral action, and some may even struggle to create them. But until effective institutions are brought into operation, unilateral action is perforce the lawful mode of decision. In micro-legal arrangements in the private sphere, in liberal systems which allow them, co-archical decision by unilateral action is the normal mode of decision. But the stakes are usually much lower and the consequences apparently evanescent. Wholly aside from the question of efficiency, the first type of constitutive structure raises serious political philosophical problems. Where there are clear norms, unorganized modes for appraisal of the lawfulness of the unilateral action may be quite efficient, but by their nature, unorganized and non-hierarchical systems tend to mirror the power process in which the quintessential Grundt norm is Thucydides, the strong do what they will and the weak suffer what they must. I move to the second type of constitutive structure. And this, as you'll recall, is one which has some institutions which are manifestly ineffective. In the panorama of domestic political and legal systems, many are essentially semantic. They are furnished with sometimes grandiloquent paper constitutions, along with corresponding paper institutions, with elaborate paper legal procedures, which purport together to be their legal and political system. Yet they have no power. Actual decisions are made by a shadow process, which may converge with a formal legal system but which operates on an entirely different value calculus. In some circumstances, the formal system will issue the actual decisions and outsiders may even attribute them to the legal process. But insiders, operators who understand the operational code, know that it is fruitless to seek decisions from the formal process if they have not first been certified by the actual power process. Unfortunately, ineffective political and legal systems abound. The earliest known example is the Code of Hammurabi, an elaborate codex that was never applied. Numerous similarly ineffective systems have existed since. Uh, Rogelio Perez Perdomo has produced an indispensable study of this type of system in 19th century Latin American codiajes. Ernst Frankel analyzed it in his classic study of the Doppelstadt. In my own experience, as a member of a regional human rights oversight body, I found this to be a situation so common that for all of its frustrating ineffectiveness, one hesitated to call it abnormal. I believe that at some level of consciousness, all of us entertain the possibility that the legal system in a particular situation may be only semantic. For example, when we visit a town and ask, who's the mayor? And then somewhat easily ask, and who's the boss? Yet, for those who have been acculturated to and work in effective legal systems, each confrontation with semantic systems, even when recognized as such, still generates 
a type of what Leon Festinger called cognitive dissonance. We have been conditioned to respond affirmatively to the symbols of law so that even if they are only symbols with no effective legal system behind them, their presence still tugs and makes any action, whether taken by others or ourselves, that has not been pre-authorized by its paper institutions seem somehow unlawful and even corrosive of the law itself. Let's consider briefly the third constitutive structure in terms of an ideal type. You will recall that I referred to effective institutions within the constitutive structure, but from time to time ineffective. There are legal systems that are only partially effective. In some circumstances, this occurs over extended periods because of a lack of coordination of political power and political authority. In other circumstances, it occurs because, as Myers McDougall put it, authoritative reach exceeds control and grasp. The phenomenon of legal overreaching is more common than may be generally appreciated, for ineffective law is often not a failure of legal drafting or a lapse of legislative continence, but rather a conscious technique for mediating between the incompatible aspirations of different classes and interest groups by means of the device of recognizing, recognizing legislatively the claims of one group while ensuring that the legal promise will neither be enforced nor otherwise fulfilled. In other circumstances, it occurs not because of an intentionally designed incapacity, but because of a particular unanticipated stress on the system. Now, many legal systems have contingent exceptions, or as the Romans would have said, exceptions, for unilateral action to fill the gap for important matters for which there are clear substantive standards and prescribed procedures, but whether generally or sporadically, insufficient power to make them effective. In modern international law, the prime example of the exceptio is the so-called right of self-defense. This power, which the United Nations Charter authorizes to its parties, is not, it should be emphasized, a survival from an earlier period of law as the rather archaic naturalist language that was used to frame it in Article 51 of the Charter would suggest. It's an intentional exceptio, for there was no right of self-defense prior to the Charter's installation of a prohibition on the use of force. Until that time, states, as a manifestation of their sovereignty, were entitled to wage war, whether to defend existing rights or to change them. So a right of self-defense was redundant. Despite the word inherent in the English version, or droit naturel in the corresponding French version of Article 51, the provision was designed to function as an exceptio to the general assignment of the monopoly of the right to use force that had been made to the Security Council. Finally, let me briefly consider the fourth ideal type, and this is effective institutions within the constitutive structure. When a constitutive structure has hierarchical institutions that are effective and can meet the authorized demands of those who participate in it, there is no justification for unilateral action. Hence, virtually all unilateral action in this constitutive setting is presumptively delictual. The sanctioning agents may sometimes appreciate that a particular unilateral action is different from ordinary delicts that are occasioned by negligence or presumably animated by an intention to self-enrich. Moreover, those applying the sanctions may be conscious of the moral arguments that can be marshaled to justify the particular unilateral action. Nevertheless, the action will still be condemned and sanctioned lest the constitutive process cease to be effective and degrade to the third type. In the constitutive process that has established and maintained effective structures then, we encounter unique oxymorons such as civil disobedience, civil disobedience, and complex multi-referential terms such as 
vigilantism. A term such as civil disobedience is invoked by the unilateral actor who acknowledges the authority and effectiveness of the decision process he or she is disobeying, and in some theories, the propriety of punishment for the civil disobedience. Vigilantism is a complex term of decision makers, which at once condemns the unilateral and as a result more arbitrary action taken, and insists that sanctions be applied, yet in not using the word criminal, implies some understanding of the reasons for the action, usually the inability or refusal of the political and legal system to address through timely lawmaking or effective application the issue, the issue which has excited the action of the vigilante. Now, each of these four constitutive configurations views the category of events that we call unilateral action differently. Only in the last three is unilateral action a legal problem. In the second and third, the uncertainty with regard to the lawfulness of unilateral action or its normative ambiguity arises from the cognitive dissonance caused by the realization that the constitutive process to which the prerogative of action has been assigned is either generally or momentarily unable to implement rights, while in the fourth, the primary problem is one of control. As the constitutive process is effective, so unilateral actions are unnecessary to vindicate rights and hence are presumptively unlawful. Yet, even in the latter type of constitutive structure, particular unilateral acts and unilateral action in general may be viewed as unlawful only by some participants. In light of the review, let's consider the succession of constitutive processes in international law, but again with the same drastic abbreviation we used for the description of the four types of constitutive structure. Until the early 20th century, international law approximated the first constitutive structure. There were no hierarchical institutions, and decisions were perforce taken unilaterally, unless governments found it in their interest to participate in an ad hoc multilateral decision. Lawmaking was accomplished by custom which allows for unilateral acts that make new law by violating previous law, so that in an ironic inversion of the Roman maxim, the maxim of international law was indeed ex delicto oriterius, law comes out of delicts. As for law application, <clears throat> the usual method was unilateral act. A state that felt it was entitled to certain rights perforce secured them by itself by what was inelegantly but accurately termed self-help. If a particular state lacked the power to self-help, there was no institution to which it could turn. In consequence, it was simply unable to vindicate its rights. A discussion of the lawfulness of unilateral action would have been meaningless in this constitutive structure. Many efforts after 1899 sought to change the constitutive process by establishing hierarchical institutions to which states were supposed to assign decision competence and surrender rights of unilateral action they otherwise would have enjoyed. But these efforts were clearly viewed as exercises de lega ferenda. The creation of the League of Nations brought into being a constitutive structure of the second type an apparently hierarchical structure had been established, but if one read the fine print, it was clear that its functioning depended upon the voluntary actions of the many states that were party to the covenant. If those actions were not forthcoming, there was no effective sanction, and one would have expected a regression to the first constitutive structure. But with the conflation of two constitutive processes, one allowing unilateral action, the other purporting to have institutions of decision that would obviate unilateral action, the lawfulness of unilateral action became more ambiguous 
and began to generate the cognitive and moral dissonance that now seems indissolubly associated with the concept. The creation of the United Nations in 1945 was the culmination of efforts to establish a constitutive process approximating the fourth ideal type. The government representatives who designed the organization wanted a constitutive structure that would address their basic security needs. Accordingly, a general prohibition on the threat or use of force was installed, and other than a short-term right of self-defense pending the response of the Security Council, the Council was assigned the exclusive right to use force to respond to threats to the peace, breaches of the peace, and acts of aggression. Now, for all of its ambition, this was actually a realistic formula because the five permanent members of the Security Council, on whose agreement its operation depended, concurred that overt uses of the military instrument against the political independence or territorial integrity of states were the most significant threats to international order. Henceforth, violations of these widely accepted norms were not to be resisted or remedied unilaterally, but only by the collective action of the United Nations. Other matters, on whose normative character the permanent members would likely have disagreed, were deemed to fall within a sphere of domestic jurisdiction that was insulated from international concern. In this period, then, the unilateral action would have been deemed unlawful. With the advent of the Cold War, the constitutive structure created by the Charter remained in place, but in practice, it quickly degraded from what had been intended to be the fourth type of constitutive arrangement to the third. The veto effectively paralyzed the Council in virtually all circumstances in which the Charter regime would have expected it to operate. Alternative, essentially unilateral techniques for addressing the security concerns of the governments that had established the system developed. But efforts were still to maintain and to shelter such practices under the authority of the UN Charter. Expansive and at times patently forced interpretations of Article 51's right of self-defense were invented. A new term, countermeasures, was minted in order to fulfill a vacuum that had been created by the broadly formulated prohibition of the threat or use of force and the intervening ineffectiveness of the constitutive structure that had been assigned the exclusive competence to use force in support of public order. Even the International Court of Justice, while condemning unilateral uses of force, still allowed the state resorting to them to enjoy some of their fruits. Yet the court itself inched cautiously toward a possible exceptio for the unilateral termination of treaties in urgent environmental matters. In the course of this period, participation in the constitutive process expanded and the relative effectiveness of the various categories of participants began to shift in ways quite different from the conceptions of classical international law. While states had long been deemed the only subjects of international law, non-state participants in international law were hardly an innovation. For centuries, wealth elites had operated effectively through charter companies and directly on the governments of states. Long after it had ceased to have a territorial base, the Holy See was acknowledged as one of the very few sui generis non-state participants in the international legal process. Now, thanks to developments in communications, many new non-governmental entities have begun to operate efficiently in the international legal process, while more and more private individuals are able to play increasingly effective roles in decision functions such as promoting, lawmaking or prescribing, invoking, and law applying. Not the least of the innovations is the growing power of the electronic mass media, a development whose full effect has been felt only in the last decade 
of the 20th and beginning of the 21st century. So in a relatively short period of time, an international decision process essentially comprised of representatives of states operating severally and later collectively in the United Nations and largely restricted to state representatives has been incorporated into a much larger contemporary international decision process which includes not only officials of states but the aggregate actual decision process comprised as it is of governments, intergovernmental organizations, non-governmental organizations and in no small measure the media. All the actors who assess retrospectively or prospectively the lawfulness of international actions and whose consequent reactions now shape the flow of events constitute in some the international legal decision process. The transformation of a system that was largely managed by state elites into the contemporary international legal process has coincided with the virtual enfranchisement of a new international fourth estate, the transnational electronic mass media, as an independent force whose professional elite are largely animated by the values of the Western liberal tradition. Currently, the media appear able to play a preponderant role in invoking international decision by presentation of graphic images of human rights violations and insistence that a remedy be provided. So there's been a shift of power. Power is often a zero-sum exchange. So increases in non-state actors' influence have correlatively reduced the influence of many of the more traditional state-based actors and the organizations they established. The political objectives of the host of new non-governmental participants are far from homogenous, but they are essentially different from those of the elites managing the affairs of states. To be sure, state representatives still control formal access to many of the inherited organized arenas of law, but the international decision process can now initiate and participate in them as the legality of nuclear weapons opinions before the international court showed, or it can co-opt or incorporate or circumvent them. Many students of international law resist the notion that this phenomenon is a legal process, let alone the legal process that now decisively shapes expectations of authority about international behavior. But heads of even the most powerful states, delegates to intergovernmental organizations, members of international secretariats, legal advisors, corporate elites, even mid-level officers planning targeting for military campaigns have learned that they ignore the operation of this phenomenon, whatever they call it, at their peril. Now, the installation of the International Human Rights Code as part of modern international law and the establishment of oversight institutions that purport to regulate the techniques by which governments control their populations are largely results of the agitation and growing influence of non-governmental participants in the expanded international decision process that I've just described. After all, state elites are hardly likely to initiate an external process that effectively limits their freedom to choose and use the ruthless, though time-tested methods of control of, and management of people in their territory, the sine qua non of their base of power. But Thanks to the ability of state elites to protect their interests, the human rights norms that had been prescribed in formal documents remained, for the most part, aspirational rather than effective, on the order of a standard of achievement, the Universal Declaration's functional equivalent of the United States Supreme Court's all-deliberate-speed formula. Moreover, such institutions as were established at the universal level were either firmly controlled by governments and subject to their political interests, for example, the Human Rights Commission, or said to acknowledge, sad to acknowledge, generally ineffective even when composed of independent experts. 
The end of the Cold War and the disintegration of the Soviet Union signaled the apparent restoration of the consensus among the five permanent members of the Security Council. As this had been the precondition for the operation of the charter system, for a short time it appeared that the world community had returned to the fourth type of constitutive structure. This impression was reinforced by the response of the Security Council to Iraq's invasion of Kuwait. But the impression of effectiveness was only partially accurate, for the consensus had never gone beyond a manifest violation of an international boundary and the seizure of the territory of another member of the United Nations. It had never extended to human rights, that is, the authoritative international scrutiny of the essential techniques by which state elites control their populations. Not all of the Security Council permanent members were democratic, nor could they meaningfully commit themselves to many of the standards in that Human Rights Codex. The introduction of human rights into international law and the opening of an international decision process to broad and effective non-governmental participation has had significant and surprising effects on the legal status of unilateral action. Recall that the absence of consensus on human rights was of little consequence for the operation of the Security Council as long as those rights were considered to be matters of domestic jurisdiction that were neither deemed to be the active responsibility of the United Nations or within the assignment of the Security Council. Now, however, the new and expanded international decision process has taken a hitherto normatively uncertain human rights standard of achievement, remember the language in the Universal Declaration, refashioned it into the international protection of human rights and elevated it to an imperative level of international law. Indeed, it is increasingly characterized as a Juskogans, a term currently used in ways quite different from its denotation in Article 53 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. But real law, which requires coercive enforcement, is assigned to the Security Council. Yet the task of human rights enforcement cannot be discharged, for the members of the Council do not agree or cannot form a consensus on human rights norms for particular cases. In a decision process in which lawmakers and law appliers are identical, non-enforcement of norms over time would render them caducus. But as the norms in question, international human rights norms, derive from a broader decision process than the body assigned to enforce the norms, they derive from this larger process which is distinct from the Security Council. The broader process sustains the norms and seeks alternative modes of enforcement. In the fourth type of constitutive structure, the use of force, the ultima ratio of law, is, as you will recall, taken from the individual state and henceforth to be effected by the Security Council. As remedies for grave human rights violations may involve the use of major coercion against the government, they too fall within the competence of the Council. But the absence of consensus on human rights means that their remedial action requiring, as it does, agreement of all the permanent members of the Council is unlikely. Yet the international legal process's demand for a remedy for grave violations of human rights has become so powerful and urgent that democratic governments that are susceptible to non-governmental influence and that have the wherewithal to effect a remedy are under great pressure to act unilaterally. Hence, for purposes of the enforcement of human rights, a constitutive process of the fourth type now reverts to the third type. Enforcement through the Security Council, if it can be achieved, but enforcement unilaterally, if it cannot. Thus, we encounter an anomalous constitutive regime in international law, 
which begins to reserve different legal treatment for different types of unilateral actions based principally on the purpose or objective of the actions concerned. Since many participants assume that an ineluctable feature of law is generality of application, this constitutive regime engenders more normative ambiguity and cognitive dissonance. One of the functions of organized and institutionalized decision-making is to ensure that due deliberation precede action, thereby minimizing the inevitable tendencies to impulsiveness and arbitrariness to which decisions are always prone, but which increase when choices must be made in crisis. In the civil rights and the human rights context, the demand for, ordinary, for orderly decision, often under the rubric of due process, is deemed so important that in many systems, a denial of due process requires setting aside a decision that may otherwise have been substantively correct. So the demand among international lawyers for institutionalized decision is particularly intense with respect to unilateral actions that purport to remedy grave human rights violations, both as a value in itself, as well as the concern that even more human rights may be grievously violated in an effort that is supposed to protect human rights from grievous violation, but is done in the wrong fashion. Due process demands exacerbate the cognitive dissonance associated with that species of unilateral action called humanitarian intervention. But the primary juridical objection to unilateral, unilateral action for humanitarian purposes is that without formal institutional determinations of whether the circumstances really warrant unilateral action, the action is likely to be taken rhetoric aside in the interest of the intervener. And there are, alas, ample examples of past abuse to justify this concern. The inherited doctrine of humanitarian intervention usually involved a strong state invoking humanitarian concerns and intervening in a weaker state to remedy alleged grave human rights violations. As such, it was essentially a rhetorical device for one state did not need a human rights justification for intervening or even of seizing the territory of another. The establishment of the League of Nations and the installation of the second type of constitutive structure created a need for a doctrine justifying any unilateral action which the constitutive process prohibited. Since the time of the League, as the world constitutive process has oscillated among the second, third, and fourth constitutive structural types, the doctrine has understandably continued to be controversial. The states that purported to be acting on the basis of humanitarian intervention were acting quite selectively and usually in circumstances in which national interests unrelated to humanitarian concerns played no small part in the motivation for the action. Moreover, the interveners, classically oblivious to the beam in their own eyes, were often guilty of human rights violations in areas subject to their own jurisdiction and control. In the contemporary constitutive process, the potential for abuse in humanitarian interventions is considerably reduced because the species of unilateral action for humanitarian purposes that has emerged in the contemporary constitutive process is different, both in stimulation and application, from its traditional counterpart. In terms of the sequential decision functions that we analyzed at the very beginning of this lecture, it's clear that recent humanitarian actions have not been initiated by states. Quite the contrary. It's the international legal process that is the force that now invokes, compels, and appraises the lawfulness of unilateral acts purported to be based on humanitarian concerns. Consider Kosovo. The 1999 intervention in Kosovo was not secretly prepared in the US Department of Defense 
in order to achieve some secret recondite objective in the Balkans unrelated to the human crisis there, and then skillfully translated the moral and legal package and promoted by public relations personnel. Quite, quite the contrary. Most foreign policy and security specialists appear to have opposed the action, as did many civilian and political military elites. The international legal process compelled the action. Similarly, in East Timor, the foreign policy and security specialist class assembled manifold reasons to prove that this situation was different from Kosovo and as such did not warrant international action or American participation. Again, however, the action was compelled by the larger decision process. And when it became inevitable, the members of the Security Council and even the government of Indonesia acquiesced. While this latter endorsement, nominally authorized by the Security Council, gives the impression that it transpired within the fourth type of constitutive structure, the actual decision was taken by a less organized arena and if necessary, might well have been affected unilaterally. Hence, the fears of the gross kinds of abuses associated with humanitarian interventions in the first type of constitutive structure are considerably reduced. Concerns about the quality of due process available in this kind of unorganized decision process, however, are not. So let me try to draw this lecture together with some final remarks. The, the constitutive regime that currently obtains is capable of responding collectively through the Security Council to many of the grave violations of international law enumerated in Article 39 of the Charter. For such violations, there is neither need nor justification for unilateral action. But this constitutive process will find it more difficult to respond collectively to those grave human rights violations that contemporary international law has raised to the class of calamities requiring effective international response. So this latter category will sometimes be addressed by forms of unilateral action that the international legal protest pro process may, in context, deem lawful, but that manifestly fails a test of reality under the United Nations Charter. In, in some ways, this situation represents important advances toward the achievement of certain key policy goals. Some satisfaction may be taken from the fact that the Security Council is more able than in the past to respond to the sorts of threats and breaches of the peace, acts of aggression, that the Charter assigned to it. Similarly, the emergence of the international legal process, as I've described it, is in itself a triumph of enhanced participation, enfranchising as it does many ineffective and heretofore ineffective international actors with a corresponding reduction in the power of many state elites. The fact that this international legal process is more able than constitutive structures of the past to compel the provision of remedies for some grave human rights violations is a cause for satisfaction. But these gains notwithstanding, the current constellation of the constitutive process is far from satisfactory. The electronic mass media, which play a central role in the new international legal process, are profit-maximizing entities and not international civil servants. In the competitive market environment in which they operate, they must vie for the attention of audiences. At the moment, graphic images of disaster sell and buy advertising. But that may change as audiences grow weary of this entertainment and seek something new or retreat into private realities. When this happens, one may expect the media to turn their attention elsewhere. Thus, the media are not a reliable long-term substitute for an institutionalized international decision process 
specialized in the types of problems that give rise to the need for international humanitarian action. The criteria by which the media select particular human rights violations for massive coverage are inconsistent and unpredictable. For example, Bosnia-Herzegovina and Kosovo got attention. Greater carnage in other places do not. Deliberation and advanced planning with respect to the use of force is sacrificed in a system that responds spasmodically and emotionally rather than rationally and deliberately. The demand for rapid results, which is what inevitably characterizes human rights crises, may skew sound strategic planning and make campaigns more costly or produce illusory or pretend results. The normative ambiguity and cognitive dissonance caused by the conflation of the third and fourth types of constitutive process may tend to undermine generally the authority of law. The safeguards that are part of an organized and institutionalized decision process are not available in the constitutive constellation that currently obtains. So the challenge for international lawyers in the 21st century remains to improve the world constitutive process so that it can address humanitarian and other issues and thus obviate international, international humanitarian intervention affected unilaterally.